This is Top Floor, episode 93. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 93. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. I'm talking to Stephanie Smith, CEO and digital matriarch of Cogwheel Marketing about who her agency helps. Stephanie, there are no shortage of marketing agencies in hospitality. What sets Cogwheel apart? Our specialty is really working with branded hotels, primarily ones that operate as franchisees under Marriott, Hilton, IHC, and Hyatt, including all of their soft brands. How do you replace a field marketing team from the brand or do you? Every company is in a different journey on their digital marketing. Depending on where ownership or management company is, we're nimble enough. We can meet them where their needs are. If they have somebody on their team that's doing digital marketing, we can certainly complement them given where their skill sets might lie. What about focusing on direct bookings versus OTAs? We like to look at it as a total online presence because yes, we want to drive as much as we can for our book direct strategy, but we also have to realize that OTAs have huge marketing budgets. It's really going to be hard for a hotel to compete with. So we have those tools when it makes sense. We have to really look at the data and say, okay, this is what's happening. And how do we adapt all of our digital marketing strategies to what's happening for that hotel in that market? Welcome to the show. Jordan Locke went to West Point and Columbia before finding his way to revenue management. As a pricing expert, Jordan worked for Whole Foods, Pitney Bowes, and Verbo, and then founded what may be the very best-named company, Rev Party, to help short-term rental portfolios increase their revenue. Jordan said something so smart to me on LinkedIn that I begged him to come on the show. It was that hotels yield rate positively and short-term rentals yield rate negatively. If that doesn't make sense to you, just stick around because today, Jordan and I are going to talk about how short-term rental owners can do a better job of pricing their properties. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and other people off the street who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Eileen. And Eileen asks... How often do I change or update my listing on Airbnb? What do you think, Jordan? There's not a lot of detail here. So I'm not sure what kind of listing Eileen has. But my sense is that they're wondering how often they need to do something with it or can they just set and forget it? Yeah, I'd say as a starting point, I usually recommend at least once a week. Oh, wow. Usually you have at least one of your days that are more busy booking wise than the other, especially for vacation rentals. Um, Cause it's not so much business travel. And then also your competitive landscape, especially just, just based on your, the size of your market can change pretty quickly as well. 
So I'd say for the more casual uh, operator, usually once a week is where I start. Obviously, as you get a bigger portfolio and kind of more ingrained into the revenue management ways, you probably end up checking it once or multiple times a day. See, that's I thought you were going to say like once a month or once a quarter if you only had one unit. So that's good to know once a week is kind of the place to look. And do you think that that involves changing rates on a weekly basis? Or is that just to kind of see what's going on? It could be changing rates on a weekly basis, but not necessarily. I think part of the concern with vacation rental inventory is that it's not incremental. It's binary. It's either booked or it's unbooked. And so things can change really, really fast if you don't pay attention to the competitive landscape and your rates. And so, you know, it only takes a couple bookings to completely change your calendar availability. Um, So you kind of have to check it more often just because you're operating at an individual unit level. That makes sense. So shifting gears and traveling back to your past, you were in the army. And I'm wondering how or if at all your time in the army impacted your decision to choose economics as an academic pursuit and ultimately pricing as a career. So not directly. Um, I think there's some things that kind of carry over from my military service into pricing that are similar, but I wasn't necessarily inspired to be in pricing for life from the army. Um, <laughs> so after making the switch, you know, there's obviously a lot less yelling, but some things that are similar. <laughs> Maybe it depends on what kind it depends of depends on the day and how well you're doing, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, some things that are similar, like the the process and the standardization in the military, you're always trying to take these really abstract big action things and break them down step by step so they get executed the same way across the board. And it's really similar in revenue management. You're trying to implement all these rules, policies, procedures, tactics on a daily basis um, across a wide portfolio. And so I think, you know, while the Army didn't inspire me to be in pricing, a lot of that skill set kind of transfers over to making a really strong pricing program. That's interesting. I don't think I would have thought of it that way. So you've priced everything from oil and gas to insurance, water balloons, toilet seats. How did you become a pricing specialist specifically? Yeah. So when I started after college, uh, I was more in an economics role. Um, So we did civil litigation for really large companies. So millions and billions of dollar lawsuits company to company. Um, And we had to figure out economic damages. And so a lot of that comes down to how much you sold the product for. Um, But there's a lot of complications in court cases around pricing. You know, some brands can demand a higher price by their brand value, um, by the the unit economics they have at production. And there's just so many different variables that go into it. Throughout the course of that job, I really had to start breaking down prices into their components really determine what influences what so I could give an accurate estimate to the courts. Um, And so that's kind of what got me down the pricing path. And then uh, from there, I just really focused on pricing programs in general. And is it something that... You know, there's a lot of discourse around follow your passion or like find something that you love and you'll never work a day, which I kind of think is nonsense. And then there's the counterpoint to that, which is find something that you're really good at and that comes easy to you and do that. How much of the pricing thing is something that you're like burning soul passionate about and how much of it is something that comes easy to you and that you're really good at. So you just do it. Oh, that's really interesting. I think. 
it does kind of come naturally easy to me, the thought process, the math, the economics. And so that's definitely a huge part of it. And I don't know if I would say like my lifelong passion is pricing per se, <laughs> but I, but I think pricing like does give you the opportunity to do things that are important to me. So it's a lot of teamwork and collaboration. It's a lot about deriving value that other people kind of created from their craft and their skills. Um, it's about delivering a product to different consumers that they want or need um, and how you're going to do that. And so I think a lot of the kind of daily challenges you face in pricing kind of align to the, the values I'd want to pursue. But I don't know that I would necessarily have to do it in pricing if I was good at something else. That's interesting. After you worked in all of those different industries, the water balloon industry, etc., you landed in short-term rentals first at a startup called The Guild and later at Verbo. Can you talk about setting up the revenue management programs from scratch at those companies and what that was like? Yeah. So I think one thing that was interesting when I started at The Guild is that revenue management for vacation rentals wasn't strongly established at the time. So a lot of the software that's out there now didn't exist. There was only you know three or four competitors that had real seed money. Um, and so it was a lot of people just trying to figure out like what revenue management looks like for vacation rentals. Um, so that was a slightly different experience. That was kind of wild west. Let me look and see what hotels are doing. What can we borrow? What doesn't make sense? Why not? And just kind of uh, fundamentally framing what pricing should look like for vacation rentals. And when I went to Verbo, by that point in time, revenue management had already been clearly established as kind of an, a fundamental tool in the in the belt of vacation rentals. And so there was like, how do we then implement this on a very large scale across so many operators and keep it consistent? Um, but I think in both cases, like the first thing you do is you kind of look at the operational constraints and goals of the company, because um, it's really going to influence what tactics you can use and then what you know KPIs you want to drive. Um, and then also in both cases, always made change incrementally. So uh, there's so many levers to pull in revenue management. If you pull them all at once, you never quite know what's going to happen, especially if it wasn't really well documented ahead of time. Um, so I always go and make changes kind of one at a time slowly. So you don't kind of risk, you know, having an entire open month uh, and ruining your financials. <laughs> Was there ever a time that you did something like I remember in the early days of the internet in the hotel business, there were these famous cases of like really expensive hotels accidentally putting their presidential suite online for a dollar and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like these mm -hmm. crazy rates. Did you ever have instances like that? Or are you still, you know, under an NDA and you can't reveal that secret information? Definitely have. I mean, at the time, we uh, there wasn't a whole lot of software to integrate vacation rental software to one another. Um, so a lot of it was kind of backend hacks or even manual data input. Um, so, you know, there was a, a quite a few times where we'd have a room up with an extra zero or two um, that I wouldn't sell and you'd figure out because it was way too expensive. <laughs> and then one time when we launched, we launched a, a new building in Miami. Uh, it had about 33 bedroom apartments. We launched it and then just completely sold out all of our three bedrooms within minutes. Um, we had done like seasonal adjustments and knew Christmas was big in Miami. What we didn't have a comp for and didn't know is that three bedrooms were going to be that desirable. Um, so we ended up having to cancel about 30 reservations, reprice and rebook. Um, so I was just kind of, you don't know what you don't know scenarios that happened there. 
Interesting. Your consulting business, Rev Party, which let me, I can't say it enough how much I love the name of this company. Like I just want to keep saying it over and Rev Party, Rev Party, Rev Party is devoted to helping short-term rental portfolios with revenue management strategy. And I know you work kind of on a project basis and then you also do revenue management as a service. How would you compare... The pr- I know you said you looked at what hotels did when you were first starting with the guild. How how would you compare doing it for short term rentals versus how hotels do it? it would you even compare it? Uh, I think they're getting more similar as time goes on. Um, I think originally it was more about just kind of pricing and revenue for vacation rentals. Now they're getting into some more of the kind of property underwriting and creating forecasts and projections and letting that feed financials. And so I think it's getting more and more towards kind of that weekly revenue meeting, cross-collaborative approach that hotels have used for so long. Um, But in the beginning, it was primarily just rates and availability. um, And how do we set those up? One of the big things that hotels have long done is look at compression dates. And so for the listener who maybe hasn't heard of a compression date, that's something like a big event like the Super Bowl or lately a Taylor Swift concert where a big event happens and it sells out every hotel and now every short-term rental unit in the immediate marketplace. So availability is really tight and you have to go further and further away from where the event is happening in order to find availability, find supply in order to um, accommodate that demand. There are lots of conversations taking place right now about how compression is changing based on the existence of the short-term rental industry and, and the what's the word, sort of the elasticity or the um, adjustability of short-term rental supply. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Talk about what you think the impact of the short-term rental industry and inventory is on compression? Yeah, I think it's really going to change how people view big events, how they shop for them, and even how property managers will operate them. Um, I think, you know, before everybody left compression events because inventory was flat, but demand would raise. And so you can get more per room because the the demand is raised, but the supply is the same. When you bring in vacation rentals, it means that supply can change. And so um, there are people that don't have to commit to a vacation rental year round. They can do it seasonally. They can do it by the week, by the day. And so what you'll see is like, as these bigger compression events start showing up, more people will flood the market with inventory, which kind of takes away from that added demand you get from the event. Um, and so I think it's going to be, you're going to have to be more professional, whether you're a hotel or a vacation rental during compression events, because you'll have to compete more with that changing inventory. Um, I think we saw that in Arizona for the Super Bowl this year too, right? There was like 50% of vacation rentals went unbooked, which is unheard of for, uh, the Super Bowl, but it's because a lot of them, uh, weren't high quality listings. They were just put up, um, too many kind of flooded the market, and you can see like a typical Super Bowl compression event just didn't fill out all the occupancy. And it's because of that new supply. Um, so I think, you know, vacation rentals and hotels are going to start paying a lot more attention to each other, especially around these these high dollar dates. There's also something to the quick buck play. Like, you know, somebody putting a one bedroom apartment up for $10,000 a night, like 
sorry, that's not worth it under any circumstances. Like, it's just not. I mean, who's going to pay that? It doesn't matter. My Taylor Swift tickets were already too expensive. Sorry, I'm not interested. (laughs) You know, that it just doesn't fly. Um, Something else that people are talking about, I think a lot, I've been seeing this on LinkedIn a good bit lately, is about upselling. And... This is a conversation that waxes and wanes in hotels, but I think it's becoming hotter in the short-term rental industry. So this is stuff like offering early check-in for an additional cost, late checkout, extra amenities, all that stuff. I even saw someone talking about... (laughs) This is so bizarre to me. Offering pool heating for an extra fee. Like if you want the pool to be heated, our heated pool will be heated for you if you pay us an extra fee. Which... (sighs) How do you feel like those fit into revenue strategy, like a revenue management strategy as a whole? I don't know specifically about pool heating. Um, (laughs) I think I would have a hard time putting a dollar amount on how much I'd be willing to pay for a heated pool. Versus a not heated pool. I would be willing to pay a higher rate if the unit came with a heated pool, but I'm not sure that I would... Anyway, go on. <laughs> but I think it's it's really important. One of the things I admire about casinos, cruises, resorts, amusement parks is they really have a holistic view of revenue. Um, and so you know, when Disney sets their rates and targets customers for their hotel... They're not just thinking about how much they'll get off that stay in room revenue. They're also figuring out what kind of customer is most likely to buy more food and ride more rides and buy the extra passes and merchandise. Um, you know, a casino wants to know who's going to gamble and, and lose more money. And so they're all trying to kind of optimize this revenue ecosystem beyond just the room. Um, and I think that's kind of what you can do, especially in the vacation rental space, as people go to drive to destinations for vacations. Right, you have all these opportunities for value adds that you could start making part of your holistic revenue strategy. So I know they have some uh, providers that allow you to buy the actual furnishings and artwork that are available in your rental and sheets. Uh, they have ones that provide groceries. They have some that provide you know, beach rental equipment. Right, And so I think as these become more and more available um, and they get more data and the vendors can get more and more specific then you can see your revenue strategy shift away from let me fill out my calendar to let me make sure I'm getting guests that are also buying these additional add-ons. Um, and then that will be part of your strategy to re- maximize revenue. And I think we see like Expedia is already starting to make their way in that direction. They just kind of released an a la carte attribute space pricing um, for some of their stays. And so I think you know Expedia is starting to acknowledge there's demand for that. And so how then vacation rentals start to capture that is kind of the next challenge. It seems like a marketing question as much as it is a revenue question because you said something in that sentence. You said two things in that sentence. One is getting the most money out of a guest, which is a little bit problematic to me. And then value add. Like There needs to be an equal exchange of value. It can't just be that we're trying to... like squeeze the washcloth completely dry of money. (laughs) Like the person has to get something that they truly value out of it too, right? I mean, I think it's the difference between junk fees versus like a true exchange of value or true true upsell or true value add. Um, 
I've talked a lot on this show about my probably personal one-person theory that AI technology is going to eliminate high barrier to entry jobs in the hotel business. Things like sales and some revenue management positions that have a secret world of a lot of rote activity. If AI and particularly machine learning can make predictive pricing decisions accurately, which I think we're probably getting very close to that. What do you think is the role of a revenue strategist who doesn't have to do that anymore? Yeah, so I think it's it comes down to translating revenue management to other teams to be able to collaborate on larger initiatives and strategy. And I think that's kind of the step that needs to happen now, even before all that automation happens. Um, so a lot of times you see revenue managers, hotels and STRs kind of in their bubble, doing rates and availability, running the reports. Um, but very rarely is it necessarily as comprehensive as meeting with marketing and sales and the GM, right? And developing a long-term strategy for what kind of guests you want to target or what improvements you're making to your property. And so there's all these things right now that are kind of outside the purview of normal machine learning for pricing. And so like, I think that's where a revenue manager adds value now. And I think that's where they'll continue to add value in the future. And maybe it's not just from direct participation. Maybe they're helping develop that machine learning model to include those extra things, right? But I think that's where you get into it, whether you get all the complexity of all the different components and departments, and then how do we make that one plan as opposed to how do I make daily price changes? That will be kind of the future of, of revenue strategy. This sounds like a good time to take a break. If you are heading to the High Tech Conference in Toronto, June 26th through 29th, I hope that you will join me and record your loading doc story there. You can sign up at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash doc. Please be sure to come by and say hello if nothing else. After this, Jordan is going to share his top secret tips for short-term rental hosts to make more revenue. So be sure that you stick around. Be right back. I'm chatting with Stephanie Smith from Cogwell Marketing about how her company helps branded hotels make the most of the marketing tools available to them. When do hotel owners or management companies engage Cogwheel versus working with a brand's internal marketing team? We help a lot of hoteliers with openings and conversions. And that's a big, strong push for a short amount of time. For a lot of different management companies, we're handling their paid media, everything from their advertising and Cody, Google, social media, search and optimization, all of those things. Something I hear from owners a lot is that the typical hotel digital marketing strategy is just about running OTA ads. How do you use that as part of your strategy without it being the only thing that you do? OTA ads kind of fall into that Hail Mary bucket. So a hotel comes to us in the middle of the month and they say, Hey, we're not going to meet budget. Then we're like, Yikes, the only tool in our tool belt that you can run to affect in the month is running those OTA ads. It's really important to understand the flywheel of the entire customer journey. People tend to focus on the transaction where people actually make the booking. And while that's important, you have to understand 
the entire research process, what happens before, during, and after the booking to create a complete strategy. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with some practical and specific tips that they can try either in their businesses or in their day-to-day lives. So I have to ask you, Jordan, what if you bought a vacation rental unit today, what are the first three things you would do to make to set up your pricing? What are the first three steps? Yep. Uh, the first thing I would always do is look at the, the market or the competition to establish a baseline. Um, regardless of what you have or what's out there, that's always kind of the best place to get understanding of what's popular, what's not, what are people generally willing to pay how many people are generally showing up. So I always kind of start with just a market or competitor overview. And that'll allow you to ballpark a lot of things and get rolling. Um, I think after that, what I do is I kind of break it down at least into you know peak shoulder and slow season and just kind of define my expectations and strategy for each kind of broad period. So you know I really want to push uh, average daily rate during compression events and, and big events. I know during slow season, I need to push occupancy, and what kind of traveler do I think that looks like? And you know, what's my plan to kind of tackle that? Um, so just really big, broad strategies throughout the calendar year. And then finally, the last thing I do is I immediately start just tracking everything. And I mean everything. And so this kind of harkens back to you know, what we were just talking about on what's the difference with machine learning that a, that a revenue manager can add. Um, and so I think a lot of that comes to tracking down all of this stuff and seeing the interplay. So I used to track when I would run a promo on Airbnb, when I would run a promo on Expedia. And that was right next to my pricing data and my discount data and my booking data. And then over time, you start to see like, hmm, should I drop 5% in a promo or should I just drop 5% on a base price? Um, and so those are changes that are hard to make early on, but are really valuable later on. So after I kind of get looked competition, set up my broad calendar of strategies, Next, I'm just going to start collecting everything so I can do more in the future. For some reason, that just made me think of this. Are there tools that will track the weather for you in addition to your historical like rate, occupancy, whatever? It, see, it strikes me that that would be a good piece of information for a vacation rental owner to also track. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you can pull in weather via API. Um, and I've played around with it a little bit before. So we've pulled in weather data from API, and then usually it's by kind of source market. Um, and that can be helpful, especially if you're concentrated in a few particular markets and you can fence in rates. Um, but as far as like grossly applying it, it's, it takes a little bit of time to get enough data to back it up. Yeah, because you always want to know like, oh, a hurricane came. So that's why we had a terrible week. But even just like the nuance of, oh, it was colder than usual or it was real rainy or whatever might be interesting to know. Okay, this is just a question I want to know and I could probably look this up. But are there rate parity rules with the online travel agencies that short-term rentals use? So like in hotels... If you are going to distribute your inventory on online travel agencies like Expedia and Booking.com, you have to agree that you will not offer a lower rate on your website than you offer to their users. Is that the same for short-term rentals? So currently, no, it is not. Uh, I've long thought for several years now that we will be heading in that direction. Um, I've seen companies that can kind of identify similar listings on multiple websites with above 90% accuracy. 
Um, so they're getting pretty close to be able to match it up one per one. I think the hesitancy right now is that inventory for short-term rentals is so distributed, right? It gets really hard to start trying to enforce rate parity because you're talking about hundreds of thousands of owners for hundreds of thousands of homes, and they might only control one home, and they might not necessarily be professional, and they may not What's like What's the upside? Their, yeah. Right. If you have your one vacation home, right, you get frustrated, you're probably going to delist as opposed to trying to make parity. Um, so what I do think is is kind of currently happening is both websites are tracking it, um, or most OTAs are probably tracking it, and they're probably tracking on whether they have a better or worse price than their competitors. And so from there, they're probably not expressing it as rate parity, but they're probably pushing listings that are better priced on their site. And they're also probably initiating some other programs to help coax people into a more fortuitous situation in, in rate match. Um, so they might not ding you or call you out for not having rate parity, uh, but I would I would assume there's lots of programs to move people in that direction. That is really interesting. I am going to watch that. Maybe I'll do a whole episode investigating that entire situation. <laughs> so what do you think are some mistakes that... And I know that you usually handle larger portfolios and I'm asking a lot of questions about individual uh, you know, short-term rental owners. But... If you like, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see someone who, you know, buys a condo, throws it up on Verbo and gets rolling? What kind of mistakes is she usually making? Yeah. So I think even for, for, you know, a single property or large portfolios, I think something that's really common in short term rentals, and you spoke to this earlier, is that they negatively yield instead of positively yield. Um, so what they do is they start with their rate extremely high. And then as time goes on and nobody books, they kind of slowly drop their rate until it finally gets booked at the lowest price it's been listed at. And then they have a booking, um, which is the opposite of what you try to do in hotels. And why they do this is because that inventory is binary, right? And so they're trying to decrease their risk as they get closer to state date. And they'll accept more risk for a higher payout early, but as they get closer, they don't want to lose all their money. So they'll take lower money to de-risk. Um, the problem with this is, is that then everybody starts doing that in a market for short-term rentals, one. So then now you have the entire market starting high and going low. Um, and two, that in most markets, there's not a single uh, operator that has a significant share of market because it's so distributed and there's so many properties. You know, most, most companies have to be price takers. So if everybody starts low um, or starts high and drops low, then you're on the ride with everybody else and it's not really a strategy. Um, and then you end up discounting even more and more last minute to outcompete those that are also discounting last minute and then everybody's seeing less money. Um, so I'd say that's like one of my pet peeves and it's a mistake I see almost everybody make. Um, what I recommend is actually just starting your rates out lower than you would originally do for vacation rentals. Um, because if you're still at a greater markdown compared to competition early on, uh, you're more likely to get a booking and sure that's lower than your competitors, but it doesn't really matter because they're going to start dropping their rate as time goes on anyways. Um, so that's like one of my biggest mistakes I see pet peeves. I'll tell everybody that, that, that'll listen. I would start uh, my rate slightly lower than you expect and try to hold them a little flatter throughout the booking curve. 
Good to know. Well, we have reached the fortune telling portion of the show. So you are going to predict the future and then we'll come back and see if you were right. What is a prediction that you have about the future of the convergence of hotels and short-term vacation rentals? Yeah. So I think one is, is we're already starting to see some of this happen is the data will become more integrated. So we're starting to see hotels look more and more at short-term rental data. Um, short-term rentals have often looked to hotels for pricing data. I think you'll see this interchange happen a lot more. Um, and they'll probably start stealing kind of leading indicators from one another to get a better idea of demand. I think these companies are going to stop looking at it as kind of traditional lodging versus new lodging hotels versus short-term rentals and start viewing them more as you know, products on a spectrum that can fulfill different uh, traveler needs. And so then as opposed to, you know, how do I beat hotels or how do I beat vacation rentals? Um, people will start really looking at who their target guest is. And instead of trying to steal share from a hotel or a vacation rental, they're going to try to make sure they capture the share of their target guest. So is it a family with a dog? Is it a, a business traveler? And so we'll see this shift from kind of a us versus them to more of a, you know, get in where you fit in mentality. I think that makes 100% sense. Do you think that short-term rentals are the leading indicator on demand? Or do you think hotels are? Uh, I think vacation rentals are. Yeah. And it's just because they tend to get booked earlier in advance. Makes sense. If you could wave a magic wand and create a completely new type of lodging, would you? And what would it be? I think mine would be a mix between vacation rentals and hotels. I think like almost like a like a resort, but like a spaced out resort. Mm -hmm. So I could have my own vacation rental with like my own house and I could do my own thing. But also I could like walk along a path and then be at like a gym and a pool and a restaurant. Like some sort of mix like that, like a vacation rental with like a central hub. I think that would be really cool. That's what I love that idea. The thing that I want in a hotel is a kitchen. I want to be able to have my own food and beverage options, but I want the communal space of the hotel coffee shop, bar, and restaurant for the times that I don't want to be alone or like want to just go do something else. Like I want both of those things. And most hotels that have kitchens do not have any food and beverage offerings. Now, I don't know how economically viable that would be, but it sounds like a lot of fun to me. So what is next for you and what's next for your company? Yeah. So I think uh, at Rev Party, we're really focusing on scaling right now. Um, so we have a lot of really good, uh, at least I think, really good solutions uh, that you know solve a lot of emerging problems, um, but they don't become economical tier at scale. So right now, we're just really trying to push that scale uh, so we can provide you know, first-rate service. And I think you know one of our goals that vary a little different from other people in this space is we really our focus on putting out research. So we're really working on setting up our research program uh, with collaborating partners so we can release new value-add material into the space so it's not the same thing every time. Okay, folks, before we tell Jordan goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Jordan, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? So uh, I can remember one of the worst launches of a property I had in history. Um, so we were launching a new property uh, that was multifamily, had about 40 different units in it. 
Um, and we were launching it in a market that was already underperforming uh, at not an ideal time of year. So it was already kind of a stressful, not Perfect. ideal situation. <laughs> um, you know, things revenue managers love to work with. And uh, so we were we were building out these rules and making them ready. Uh, and then within the first week, we got a, several one to two day bookings for most of the units. Uh, everybody was thrilled, had no clue where they came from, uh, but nobody flagged it. It turns out it all of them came from frauded credit cards. All of them were under fake names. Um, and basically all they, sh they showed up and they stole all 40 TVs. And Are you <laughs> um, so we had to eat that, make an insurance claim and uh, get 40 more TVs. How did they even know to target you? I wonder. I have no clue, but yep. They figured it out, booked all the rooms, took all the TVs. We're out in a half hour. I don't even know how they got out so quick because there was a whole elevator ride and it, but they did it. Oh my God. That is crazy. <laughs> I, I think we upped our investments in locks after that. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, Jordan Locke, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners got some good tips for what to do and what not to do when pricing their short-term rental unit. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Awesome. Thanks, Susan. I am finishing up my mini interview with Stephanie Smith, CEO of Cogwheel Marketing. Stephanie, on LinkedIn and in your newsletter, you use the hashtag always be learning, which I love and I wish I thought of myself. How does that play out in your company culture? This is both an internal and external mantra for our company. Internally, it's how we collaborate with our team members. It also comes into play with the people that we hire to be on our team. Externally, it plays out into the blogs that we write the newsletters that we send out on their different educational journey. And if we can meet them where they are, then it's going to give digital marketing a seat at the commercial strategy table. You are really focused on making sure that you continually update the tools in your toolbox. What is the latest new thing you've learned about and implemented for Cogwheel Marketing clients? It's funny you talk about tools in your toolbox. is a term that I use a lot with our team because in the digital marketing space, there's probably a hundred different things that you can do. There's been a lot of talk around moving into a cookie-less world. We've been doing a lot of testing with first-party data to run campaigns that are, instead of throwing stuff at a wall to see what sticks, we've been more intentional about segmenting and understanding who we really want to go after. We've been testing device ID targeting so we can really understand where guests have been going, understanding their patterns, who's in market, and then playing that as a target people that have stayed at your competitor hotel to really bring awareness to a specific asset. To learn more about Stephanie's company, listen to episode 19 or visit cogwheelmarketing.com. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 93. Top Floor is produced by Don Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 